0: Are you ready? Hey, everybody! Hey, Pop! Hello, everybody! People in the back! Welcome, everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Welcome, everybody! Welcome
1: to the inner loop! Without further ado! Without further ado! Okay, so without further
0: ado, we're gonna get started. We should get started. We're yeah! Working. I'm we we're, we're gonna get started! <laughs> Welcome to The Interloop Radio. I'm Rachel Koons. And I'm Courtney Sexton. And thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. The Interloop Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, and every other streaming site we could possibly find. It's true. <laughs> and if there's somewhere you'd like to hear The Interloop Radio where it isn't currently available, just shoot us an email at theinnerlooplit@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have an exciting hour of local literature planned
1: for you. Uh, But first, for those of you who don't already know, The Inner Loop is a literary reading series for writers in the D.C. area to come and read their own work each month. Uh, Writers' experience varies from the absolute beginner to Pulitzer Prize winners and everything in between and they range in genre from poetry to fiction to nonfiction, and even sometimes playwriting and other types of experimental writing and on the inner loop radio we like to offer some highlights from
0: our readings as well as going a little further in depth on the writing experience on today's show we'd like to explore the process of going from micro to macro more specifically when it comes to collections whether that be short stories essays or poems
1: yeah, absolutely, and I think it can really apply to any larger body of work, like novels or biographies as well, um, because we can start with a character or a place, you know, just as well as a poem or a story. Absolutely. The process starts, you know, often by conceiving of one thing and then trying to fit that into the larger whole of the world around us. Definitely. So how do we go from that
0: initial instant of inspiration to a fully formed body of work? Courtney, Ideas. is?
1: <laughs> Um, well, it is funny. It is. It is very often for me personally um, that momentary p- pause that, or I should say that 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 thing that gives you momentary pause. Hmm. Um, you know, just it stops you in your tracks. Exactly, walking around my daily life, and I'm like, oh, there, anything for, as as now as a plant hanging in a window or you know a, an emergency helicopter flying overhead something that mm. whatever jars me out of the ruminations my internal dialogue right. and, and makes me kind of pause for a minute and then um that's that's often where i start and from there oh man who knows because it's just <laughs> it grows
0: yeah or i feel like if you're like i write memoirs so if i'm trying to remember Um, often I'll want to construct a story around an event that happened Mm -hmm. to me because Mm -hmm. it has a lot of drama and, of course, you want to have a lot of drama in your stories. Um, But often that's not where the the, real meat is. Yeah, where the inspiration comes from. I feel like uh, the inspiration is, it is in a little something, um, you know, like a place or an object or... Um, a person or a smell.
1: I guess so especially when we're talking memoir and memory, like there are those yeah. very visceral kind of things that. <laughs> like shock. Swan's
0: Way, like the <laughs> cookie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So absolutely. how do we go from that that little something to
1: crafting a whole? Um, it's funny. And I, I've said this before, and I think I come back to it whenever I, I, the question is posed. Um, but I often start with that, that little, like, stoppable moment and then start writing, but then the writing kind of takes over mm-hmm. me and the outside world comes into my, I don't know if I want to say my consciousness or my hand or what, <laughs> whatever it may be, but it, it kind of... Um, sneaks and winds its way in in the best of moments Mm -hmm. because don't get me wrong (laughs) there there are those times when I'm just like oh I feel like this is a really significant you know memory or event or something as you're talking about that, that I want to catalog or commemorate somehow but it's just not fitting in. I'm like, who cares about this experience that I as a single human on this planet had, how does that, and and sometimes it is really a struggle mm-hmm. to to see where my speck fits in <laughs> on the beach of the world. <laughs> right. um, I think you're right though. I think
0: that writing kind of sometimes takes care of itself in the best of circumstances. So the more you write, the more those details almost create their own symbolism, their own meaning, and they tell you where to go.
1: They reveal themselves. Yeah. As you kind of, if you if you let that, it's to, to be entirely cliche, maybe, like, if you let that light shine just a little bit,
0: yeah, they kind of take over. And to take it to the next step, I am also trying to take all of my short uh, memoir pieces and collect them into Mm-hmm. a whole and i have to say that it's not as clear as straightforward <laughs> as just writing the story i feel like i when i'm writing the story i i do have an i can kind of intuit where it's going whereas when i'm trying to create this larger mm-hmm. whole i see mm-hmm. it's not it's just not as straightforward it's not as easy and you know, I have to go back over and go back over and draw things out um, and do and try to kind of work at what before came naturally on the smaller scale.
1: Right. And cull it and really batter it into something that, that it's hellacious. <laughs> it, it is. And I feel you entirely because i um I I'm a bit of a collage artist when it comes to narrating. And so very mm. often I'll have little bits. Like I have files upon files of just word documents of you know 3 to 5 lines of something and and that moment for itself is feels really significant mm. but then fitting them together into something that's cohesive and has a thread the themes are there in my head <laughs> <laughs> but translating them is the challenge and i think that's where the work as a writer comes in you know that is that is the job it's not it's not all the beauty and the art and the inspiration and the flow right which is my favorite part but it's so satisfying when when you do do the work right you have
0: to go back
1: and say what was i doing here Mm -hmm. and know it
0: in a way that in a completely different way than you knew it when you were writing it in that immediacy exactly Mm yeah yeah well, as you've heard, Courtney and I are still learning the process of building a work from the nascent sentence or image or character to a co- cohesive whole. Indeed. <laughs> but we do have someone who can give us a little more insight. We are delighted to have one of our very own mentors joining us on the show today. Up next, we'll hear from Pulitzer Prize winning poet Vijay Shashadri.
2: the dressing-gown of brocade, stitched with the zodiac. The pajamas underneath also made out of silk, for which how many individuals of the species be more I, having munched the succulent, pale-green mulberry leaves, and insinuated a sack wherein to magnify themselves, were steamed to death from the inside out.
0: That was Vijay Shashadri reading at our October edition of The Inner Loop all the way back in our very first season in 2014. Yeah, that's crazy. It's
1: it's that long ago now. (laughs) Uh, We're continuing our show discussing how to write from micro to macro. And considering how do you push your writing from that inspirational instant to a cohesive whole, to a collection?
0: And the poem you just heard is called Guide for the Perplexed, and it's from Vijay's Vige- Pulitzer Prize-winning collection of poems, three sections. And I just love that poem because it is the perfect metaphor for all of us writers. We're all steaming ourselves to death for the sake of magnifying ourselves, <laughs> as we were discussing in the A block. I don't know if you feel that way, Courtney. Maybe that's just me.
1: I mean, <laughs> it's funny, the idea of steaming uh because sometimes I feel like it's a freezing <laughs> like a slow <laughs> death <laughs> where I'm just falling asleep uh and 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 resisting for so long but then kind of letting it take over but then that's where the rebirth comes to and yeah uh. I don't
0: want to get into <laughs> 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 the seasons of the writer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like the species, be more I, we as writers would like to cre- create something out of nothing. And here to help us figure out how is the author of that very poem. We are so excited to introduce this writer who has greatly influenced both Courtney and I. And uh, here to read from his Pulitzer Prize winning collection, Three Sections, and to discuss writing from micro to macro is Vijay Shashadri. Welcome, Vijay.
2: Thank you for having me. We're Our so pleasure. happy to have you. <laughs> yeah. Great to be, you know, on the air with you guys and uh, you know, in the clouds. Absolutely. And I was fascinated by your discussion. I thought it was really interesting. And like all discussions about information, or not information, inspiration and information, not particularly informative (laughs) you know because i think it's so mysterious right how you go from farm to table
0: Mm.
2: you know i mean in uh in cuisine of course it's easy but when you're talking about writing it's such a strange complicated uncanny thing and uh you asked me to read and i thought i'd start with a poem that really in illustrates the mystery of the process yeah. and um it's called trailing clouds of glory and trailing clouds of glory is uh one line in a couplet from a uh, legendary English poem by William Wordsworth, mm-hmm. his Intimations of Immortality Ode. And it's a poem I've known since I was probably 18 years old. And uh, and the lines go, trailing clouds of glory did we come from God who is our home. And uh, the poem itself is sort of about the migration of the soul into the body and the subsequent entrapment of the soul in materiality so that it loses the sense of its origins mm-hmm. and its kind of its own divinity mm-hmm. and, uh,
1: a rough place to be
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and you know it's a it's a beautiful poem it's a very very sad poem it's about you know the loss of that connection to something ineffable and divine, and uh, which is a big romantic theme. Interestingly enough, the title came to me in this very, very odd way. In 2010, the state of Arizona passed an immigration law and yes. said law stated that if you looked as if you were undocumented just by the way you look the constabulary of the state of arizona could accost you and ask you to show your papers Hmm. and the connection between that and the words were title is sort of mysterious but that was what sort of the fact that i thought i read that story and then i thought about the title was the flash of lightning mm. mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating how things like that happen you know and uh, I always tell the story that when I was young, I would have been indignant about such a law right you know it's an affront to the Constitution it's a danger to people who look like myself you know and uh, and it's also an affront to Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence going all the way back to the Magna Carta. Mm-hmm. But when I read the story in the Times, I thought, wow, what a good idea for a poem. <laughs> <laughs> and I was mulling it over and mulling it over, and suddenly the words were... lines came into my head, and the poem fell into place. And if you know the poem, you will remember that uh, babies are very important in the poem, right? It's about kind of the the magnificence and the extraordinary imagination of children and of infants Mm -hmm. and how, you know, the infant comes trailing clouds of glory. And that joined together with the Arizona immigration law and, you know, aspects of my own personal life to create this amalgam that turned into this poem. And it's very, very mysterious how that happened to me. Mm -hmm. And what led from that idea to what the poem eventually became. And I'll read the poem and then maybe I can say something more about how it developed into what it developed.
1: Mm -hmm. That would be great.
2: Okay. Trailing Clouds of Glory. Even though I'm an immigrant, the angel with the flaming sword seems fine with me. He unhooks the velvet rope. He ushers me into the club, some activity in the mosh pit, a banquet here, a panhandler there, a gray curtain drawn down over the infinitely curving lunette, Jupiter in its crescent phase, huge, a vista of a waterfall with a rainbow in the spray, a few desultory orgies, a billboard of the snub-nosed electric car of the future. The inside is exactly the same as the outside, down to the MC with the, in the yellow spats. So why the angel with the flaming sword, bringing in the sheep and waving away the goats, and the men with the binoculars, elbows resting on the roll bars of jeeps, peering into the desert? There is a border, but it is not fixed. It wavers, it shimmies, it rises and plunges into the unimaginable seventh dimension before erupting in a field of Dakota corn. On the F train to Manhattan yesterday, I sat across from a family threesome, Guatemalan by the look of them, delicate and archaic and Mayan, and obviously undocumented to the bone. They didn't seem anxious. The mother was laughing and squabbling with the daughter over a knock-off smartphone on which they were playing a video game together. The boy, maybe three, disdained their ruckus. I recognized the scowl on his face, the retrospective maskless rage of inception. He looked just like my son when my son came out of his mother after thirty hours of labor. The head squashed, the lips swollen, the skin empurpled and hideous with blood and afterbirth. Out of the inflamed tunnel and into the cold room of harsh sounds, he looked right at me with his bleared eyes. He had a voice like Richard Burton's. He had an impressive command of the major English texts. I will do such things what they are, yet I know not. But they shall be the terrors of the earth, he said. The child, he said, is father of the man. So that's a poem where a lot of different elements are collaged. Mm -hmm. And not only different elements of kind of experience, but different elements of literature Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and culture. And they're put together in a composition that hangs together, but just barely hangs together. And I think one of the things about inspiration is how mysterious it is and how if you follow it out... It kind of creates its own pattern, as you were saying, Courtney. I think you know in your intro. I mean, you know, you were talking about how how kind of uh, unexpected it is, and how mm-hmm. the world tends to take over the writing, yeah, in some way, and and somehow that is characteristic of. Every account of inspiration you ever hear—that somehow the artist has become possessed by something right. else—and mm-hmm.
1: and that in itself is a you know a whole other layer of kind of <laughs> traditional imagery of that possessed artist and 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 being the vehicle or catalyst for some we can call it divine uh, mysterious yeah power
2: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I and you can never really figure it out afterwards, right?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. You just
2: always have to start over. You keep thinking, wow, I'm going to get a recipe from this. Right. uh, You know, but it's it's sort of you wake up from the dream and then the dream slowly dissipates.
1: Well, something I wondered, uh, especially as you were reading this particular poem and and it's something I've been thinking about recently, is this idea of the collective consciousness and Mm -hmm. so how lots of times, you know, these things are kind of floating around and we're not aware that they are, but they get recycled by people and or news clips and or in, in various images or ads or mm-hmm. just things that we see and are kind of pulling into us without realizing it fully because so much of, so that poem you wrote in what, 2012, did you say, or 13? 2010. 2010.
2: But, okay. you know, that's when the. Yeah, I think I wrote it pretty soon after I got the idea.
1: And, um, but for me, it was it seemed very much of the zeitgeist of today, and it's so it's like these things are, are are have been spinning and circling, and you kind of became the vehicle or the voice for that in that poem.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in some sense, in that time period, I mean it it's almost like the culture to a certain extent caught up with the poem mm-hmm, because exactly. of course you know those of us who are immigrants and you know i'm as far as i'm concerned only a nominally an immigrant because i've been here since eisenhower was president but still i am <laughs> technically an immigrant came; <laughs> i was born in another country and i came here and uh It seemed very alive and pertinent then, but I think it wasn't really significant to a lot of people until it became such a big issue in the recent presidential Mm -hmm. campaign. Mm -hmm. And and so, yeah, it has this continuing currency. In fact, I mean, I've been reading a lot, and I always feel I have to read that poem, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even though I'd like to retire it know and never read it again but I always feel like oh you know this is about something that's happening to us right now
0: right and, absolutely uh,
2: and so yeah that's wonderful when you can sort of catch up with the times or have the times catch, <laughs> catch up, up, up to you, you. In some way, you know?
1: <laughs> as a, um, a kind of more technical question I guess um, I noticed so you, you mentioned that collage thing as well and we go at one point, you you employ what feels like a really stark shift from Dakota Corn to the F-train. Right. And on one level that seems jarring, but on the other I can't think of any other way for you to pull those pieces together. Like it just, mm-hmm. it's how it should be.
2: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean it is, it's kind of a real, it has a lot of torque to it, that shift. Mm-hmm. But in fact it's set up pretty well because I make a grand kind of existential statement right before it. So I break the narrative right in the mm-hmm. middle mm. by making this vast generalization. And the lines go there is a border, but it is not fixed. It wavers, it shimmies, it rises, and plunges into the unimaginable seventh dimension before erupting in a field of Dakota corn. So after you kind of, you know, when you're doing something particular and then you do something general. Mm-hmm. You can kind of go anywhere you want, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've kind of given yourself a little wormhole to use <laughs> a, a metaphor from science fiction <laughs> that will take you to an entirely different part of your own universe. And uh,
0: so, and that's always fun. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I, I always get a kick out of that.
0: I feel like uh, I feel like you always have, like, a lot of your poems do a pretty. Amazing job of bringing disparate parts together that you that you would never think could be possibly be in the same poem.
1: well, he's mastered yeah. time traveling, he just told us
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I know I like that you know I mean, you were talking about macrocosm and microcosm
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh. You know, starting from the small and moving into the large, you know, that's really, I think, what all art is about, finally, shifts in scale Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that allow us to see the underlying reality, just get a glimpse of it. Now, so moving from the small to the large, the large to the small, you know, starting out with something that seems so improbable as a New York Times story. And somehow using that to move through not only different experiences, but different dimensions of experience, Mm -hmm. you know, from the microscopic to the macroscopic Mm -hmm. and back again. You know, that's sort of the real pleasure of the ride, Mm, I think.
1: Absolutely.
0: We're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to have more poetry and more discussions of micro and macro with Vijay. So stay tuned. Gather. <laughs> gather, boys. Um, If you
1: can gather in. Gather round, gather round for the second half
0: started. We're gonna get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. We're continuing our discussion on writing from micro to macro with Vijay Shishadri. We've been talking about how one collects fragments into a polished piece, but we'd also like to discuss how one collects those pieces into a larger body of work. Vijay, your book, Three Sections, was praised by the Pulitzer Committee, as a collection that examines the human consciousness from birth to dementia. Is that how you originally conceived of it?
2: Yeah, I think fairly early in the process, I had an idea or a question I felt I had to answer, which had to do with the multiplicity of selves.
0: Mm-hmm
2: that we all possess, and in some sense, in a poem I wrote early on, in the, uh, one of the earlier poems I wrote for this collection, that theme sort of announced itself,
0: hmm.
2: And I'll read that poem. Awesome. And then talk a little bit about how the thematic element ramified and gave me a sort of sense of uh, where I could take it Mm. and what I could do with it. Because it was just something I was thinking about. It was something that I was obsessed with. And uh, Mm. the poem is called Thought Problem. How strange would it be if you met yourself on the street? How strange if you liked yourself, took yourself in your arms, married your own self, propagated by techniques known only to you, and then populated the world. Replicas of you are everywhere. Some are Arabs, some are Jews, some live in yurts. It is an abomination. But better that your sweet and scrupulously neat self emerges at many points on the earth to watch the horn moon rise than all those dolts out there turning into pillars of salt wherever we look. If we have to have people, let them be you, spritzing your geraniums, driving yourself to the haberdashery, killing your supper with a blowgun. Yes, only do you feel at peace up in the branches and down in the terrific gorges but you've seen through everything else you've fled in terror across the frozen lake you've found yourself in the sand, the palace, the prison the dockside stews and long ago on this same planet you came home to an empty house poured a scotch and soda and sat in a recliner in the unlit rumpus room puzzled at what became of you. So that poem's really about, you know, the multiplicity of selves.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And, uh, and, And I think that really became something I could grasp as I was going forward as not necessarily a theme of the book, but an inclination in the book. Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, so I had a strong sense of what the book was about in my own mind, although I could never paraphrase it beyond that, and people say consciousness, but and that became kind of the people who wrote blurbs for me and stuff, they picked up on that, Mm -hmm. and and people who Mm -hmm. wrote about the book after it came out picked up on that but even though I use the word, I wouldn't really describe the binding force of the book, the curve of the binding energy of the book in that way. I'd probably talk about it more in terms of the mystery of subjectivity. Mm that we are a subject and and consciousness is of course bound up with the idea of subjectivity but you know like the only person who is experiencing perception you know from my point of view is me
1: is you yeah
2: right and and that's like such a mystery that philosophy has been stubbing its toe on from mm-hmm. the inception of the Western tradition and the Eastern tradition, and, uh, and, and it's something that I've always kind of thought about, and somehow I managed to get it, enough of it down on the page to actually make a kind of coherent tendency in all of the poems.
0: Yeah, once you had that theme in your mind, did you write toward it? Did you allow yourself to write any poems that weren't contributing to that theme? Was it encouraging, or did it sometimes feel...
2: Restrictive.
0: Restrictive, yeah.
2: No, it was... uh, It gave me larger ideas. Mm. And in that sense, the poems were sort of writing themselves. I mean, it wasn't that they wrote themselves easily, they wrote themselves painfully, and, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was the one who suffered the pain. But... they... an idea at that level allows you to kind of bind all of these... You know, we were talking about fragments earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's always the problem, how how to make unity out of the fragmentary, because experience is fragmentary. And... And an idea like that gives you a chance to do that, to sort of, uh, you know, think about shifts in point of view. And, uh, And then, you know, the theme itself, like that theme of the poem that I just read, Thought Problem, you can kind of reuse a theme like that. You, know, you can continue to develop it in different situations and different circumstances and uh, you know and it will appear in different ways and so you grow more familiar with it and uh, and it becomes a motif you mm-hmm. know it becomes mm-hmm. something like what you find in music mm. you know and and music is repetitive in that way if you listen to someone like mozart you know you hear things recurring all the time he doesn't sure he doesn't just you know have an idea work it out and move on he recycles that idea across pieces and across time and you know here's another example of that i wrote a sequence of poems you know that kind of took their stepping off Point, took Dante as their stepping, stepping off point and, uh, and they're called you know H- Hell, Purgatory the Film Purgatory the Sequel and Heaven and I'll read Purgatory the Film which really has to do with kind of an elaboration of that idea of the self as being multiple rather than one and having different points of view mm-hmm. Purgatory the Film he was chronically out of work, why we don't know. She was the second born of a set of estranged identical twins. They met, hooked up, and moved in with her mother, who managed a motel on Skyline Drive. But always it was the other, the first born, the bad twin, the runaway, he imagined in the shadow of the vacancy sign or watching through the window below the dripping eaves while they made love or slept. The body is relaxed and at rest, the mind is relaxed in its nest, so the self that is and is not itself rises and leaves to peek over the horizon where it sees all its psychokinetic possibilities resolving into shapely fiction. She was brave, nurturing, kind. She was evil. She was out of her mind. She was a junkie trading sex for a fix, a chief executive, an aviatrix. She was an angel to the blinded and the lamed, the less than upright, the infradig. And she was even a failure. She went to L.A. to make it big and crept back home, injured and ashamed. Hmm.
1: What, you know, something you mentioned just a few minutes ago as well, um, what is this, if we're all kind of having this um, shared experience of of fragmentation and and experiencing things in fragments and, and also having wanting to, to write that way and resisting that what is this inclination to bring order is that just a is that a human thing that we're trying to bring order to everything constantly yes <laughs> um <laughs> even in this in this line in the in this poem you just read for day all possibilities resolving into shapely fictions you know
2: Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, i don't know why i don't know to whom i'm posing that question
2: but <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Well, do you have an answer?
0: No. Isn't that the entire impulse to
1: create? I don't know, because if... I, I like experiencing things in fragments.
2: Uh,
1: um, but those fragments have meaning for you.
2: Right, that yeah. are built
1: on each
0: other.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean literature is a social art right and so it's determined by conventions that have to do with communicability of one sort or another right you know and no matter how fragmentary we are we have an obligation to speak with a certain kind of coherence because we're responsible for our Mm -hmm. intersubjectivity you know you talk about the idea of consciousness and i think one of the things that I think I was fairly convinced about when it came to consciousness is that consciousness is collective, mm-hmm. and it's defined by language. Language is something we all share. Mm-hmm. You know? and, uh, and we bring our own fragmentation and chaos to it, but somehow it's the negotiation between that idea of a shared burden of communicability and our individual fragmentation, and that's sort of the negotiation between th- those two things that's always producing work, and that work is always changing form, but it's always maintaining a new coherence and of course, every kind of successive wave in art the the leading edge of it has always been accused of being somewhat incoherent right. but then. <laughs> you move 20 or 30 years down the line and you look back at that stuff and it doesn't seem incoherent at all, you know. Mm-hmm. It seems to have order, form, and shape. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think the search for form is like really what we're all in the business of
3: mm-hmm. doing.
2: You know? And uh, and I think it's pretty deep. I don't know how deep it goes. I think it goes very, very deep. And uh, and And, of course, it's, the problem has been and it's a problem of our modernity is that somehow the self has become too large mm. to contain, be contained by traditional forms and that's why you had the revolution of modernism it wasn't this adventure it was just that the modern self had sort of outgrown all of these mm. forms and it's been seeking out new forms ever since and and you know where it can find a habitation mm. but it doesn't seem to be able to because we're constantly multiplying mm-hmm. right
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know and technology has transformed us all to such a great extent you know and Don't even get me started on that Now we really do (laughs) have
0: many different selves.
2: Yeah. 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 Or just in terms of like, I mean, the three of us are talking together, but really our experiences are so different, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're perfectly able to communicate with one another. I mean, I don't feel that I don't understand you, Rachel, or that I don't understand you, Courtney. And I think you probably feel that you understand me somehow. And we've known each other and we've had kind of social interaction that involves a set of conventions Mm -hmm. and a set of masks and stuff like that. But we've been friends long enough, right, so that we feel fairly confident that we know who this person is, Mm -hmm. whom we're talking to. And that's not just a fiction a social convention there's something real there but what is that you know and it can only be that we've agreed upon meaning right
1: that essential form. and
2: you know we've agreed upon meaning in a fairly deep way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh and we've kind of made moral judgments and intellectual judgments about one another that we T- kind of take for granted, but if you examine them, they're pretty profound, you know, and uh, and how do we do that instinctively, how do we do that so naturally, you know, and, uh, I mean, one of the things that's always been fascinating to me is the persistence of kind of natural law and natural morality.
1: Hmm. I, was, I don't know if this is the direction you're going, but uh, there's there's something that I've been stuck on and we chatted a little bit about this for Jay uh, over email um, in the way that non-humans communicate but that I think is really important to our own also is... I see you, you know, not physically right now. I don't because we're over the (laughs) line, but also, but, but in that, I see you in another way. I hear the tone of your voice and I, and again, there's a recognition there, but so much I think is conveyed about morals somehow through, um, this reliance that we have on, on, on the visible, um, in that, quick judgments need to be made all of the time. we see someone passing us on the street, I, I need to judge how I'm going to react if I'm going to react to that person, to that other being. And that that has nothing to do with, with uh, years of friendship or no ability, but very much everything to do with what do I see in you that I see in me or
2: not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's very mysterious human interaction <laughs> and human knowledge. <laughs> to, to but we take circle. that mystery for granted. I mean yeah. you and I and Rachel couldn't be having this conversation. Right. If we just didn't accept that yeah, we don't I mean you know, the that we're confident in getting ourselves across to one another and what is the medium that allows us to be confident in that way. And uh and I think it has something pre-human to it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly any of us who have had beloved dogs <laughs> understand that there's a degree of communication that exists that's very profound, mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with our humanity, but simply has to do with the fact that we're mammals in some way, or mm-hmm. organic beings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and
0: Part of yeah. the universe.
2: Right, yeah. I mean, the great thing about being a writer is, you know, you can just think about this stuff, I was just right?
0: going
1: <laughs> to
2: <you know, laughs> sit here and
0: ruminate on
1: it. <laughs> yeah. For hours,
0: I could talk to you about this. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I know. Yeah. Um, I mean. We are running out of time, though. I wow. hate to cut this conversation short because it's fascinating. Yeah. And I feel like we've really gone from micro to macro. Yeah. <laughs> gone That's from talking about writing <laughs> to the <laughs> universal connection of all human beings. Yeah. Um, So Vijay, do you want to close this out with one last poem? Yeah. Awesome.
2: Yeah, I'll read "Guide for the Perplexed, (laughs) which was the one you quoted from.
0: Great. Awesome.
2: And, you know, this is one of those interesting... This has a story, too. Do I have time to tell the story? Sure. Well, you know, I think probably since the... Late 1980s, I have subscribed to a weekly digest of all of the things that are currently happening in science called Science News, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you know the magazine. It's a wonderful magazine, and uh, it comes every week, and it piles up and piles up and piles <laughs> up, and... Uh, and Suzanne gets very upset about all the of this <laughs> It makes me so anxious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she says, "Well, you know, are you going to recycle those magazines?" I said, I, I, "And I keep saying, I haven't read them. I haven't read them, so I can't recycle them." And uh, and finally, month after month of this, and she says, "Well, if you don't recycle them, I'm going to recycle them." And so I read them immediately. <laughs> you know, and I go through about. Fifteen in the course of an evening. <laughs> and uh, and I have been for the past 30 years subscribing to this magazine because uh, I think I'm going to get an idea for a poem from the amazing things that are happening in science. And I have never gotten an idea for a poem in all these years except this one time. <laughs>
0: and it was all worth it
2: (laughs) yeah it was and you know the interesting thing is you know that's this poem and it's called Guide for the Perplexed Guide for the Perplexed the bedroom slippers silk linings the dressing gown of brocade stitched with the zodiac the pajamas underneath also made out of silk for which how many individuals of the species be more I having munched the succulent, pale green mulberry leaves and insinuated a sack wherein to magnify themselves, were steamed to death from the inside out. The delicate fibers are intact. He feels their ripeness on his skin. He listens deeply into the night, which listens back. The birch log pops in the fireplace. The fetishes brood on the mantelpiece. The ice melts in the gin. And yellower and deeper than dandelion yellow. Yellower and stronger than Moroccan yellow. The color almost of a yellow marigold is the yellow silk kimono she wears to greet the floating world. Moths on the wing clutter the starlight. Ghosts of dead moths are on the window pane and knee-deep in the ballroom in social clubs and places of worship. They are proof, if anyone still needs proof, that awesome are the powers of humankind who have taken this self-same moth and endowed it with a gene from the jellyfish so as to produce fluorescent silk and all in the interests of beauty. I shall spare you, by the way, my exhaustive researches into the history of the Silk Road.
0: I think that I think that might be my favorite poem, hmm. <laughs> all for the sake of beauty. Like I don't know, it, it really hits home for me. Yeah,
2: and it's such an amazing thing, right? That they could splice oh, wow, a gene yes. from yeah. jo- I mean, my God, <laughs> so wild.
0: <laughs> so- well, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Vijay, it's been awesome
1: talking with you. So yeah, good to hear you your thank you for voice. having me. And up next, we have a completely different take on moving from the micro to the macro process.
0: going to close out our show on micro to macro by fittingly i think highlighting our wonderful generous and talented
1: interns as we've mentioned uh we at the interloop feature writers from all stages in their careers from Pulitzer prize winners such as vijay who we just heard from uh, to writers just starting out like our lovely interns who have been integral to they've been amazing
0: and I can't think of a better way to illustrate the process of ushering something from its nascent stages into mastery than to highlight uh, these interns and the work that they've done. And they happen to just be in that work your ass off stage, Absolutely. which I relate to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Their readings are also a part of a larger work, which also fits into the theme. Um, So let's have a listen to Beth Specia and Reem Nadim.
4: This poem is called Mother of All Bombs. Heaven knows if it will end in fire, ice, or rote distraction. At the gate, everyone gazes at a device. Even as the sun takes a purpled plunge, even as the invisible hums, Evil must be hand-held, slack-jawed and personal. Watch, God proven in three minutes. I have seen the complete summa of Aquinas, its secrets uncracked and dust-bound as a mountain cast in the gold moon's glow. I have watched the smoke billow from the mother of all bombs, her charcoal face almost celestial. Feet washed, black fuzz floats to the surface like dead flies, and the night ends in the garden as it was written. Weeping, okay. and this one, short one, is called Fever. In his fur coat, you note the spike. You note the spike in temp or tempo, fury or smoke signs. Lines colored in lipstick, limbs entwined in corners, dark. You thought hallucinate cold cloths while boys you forgot walk past, dripping disco dust. Overheated as a motor, guzzle another slugger, half-tempered by water, fire wild in the flesh kiln, burn under the bathroom lights, you are garish moth to the tile's lure. Pulse, a promise, temperature says, rise.
3: So this is um, the introduction to a story I've been working on. The Arab Republic of Egypt had issued a dust advisory for the day Noel Shafi planned to go for a swim in the sun-warmed waters of Sahel al-Shameli. Noel intended to rent a boat from one of the street hawkers, a population whose despair over the decline of tourism would by far surpass their curiosity about a woman roaming the coast by herself. She was to leisurely row until the shimmering blue bay turned into ocean, slip into water, which would feel like ice at first, and swim until she couldn't any longer. The beach would be populated by only a few brave or stupid tourists, and the street hawker whose relief at her business would soon be superseded by the realization that his boat wasn't coming back. Noelle planned her death in her late husband's uptown Maidi apartment. She leaned back in her minimalist black plastic desk chair, high above the noise and grime of the city. She was faced by her mutedly humming computer, a hieroglyph print mug filled with pens, and a framed black and gold embroidery proclaiming bismillah. She had no children, no arrangements to make, but she was determined to write nonetheless. She would not get ahead of herself. Noelle planned to die as she had lived, one foot in front of the other, one sensible step at a time. Noel Noel wondered who would find her letter first. She imagined a detective holding up her office stationery, squinting to make out her handwriting while the building caretaker and her curious friends crowded him. Or maybe not. Despite her recent contributions to the criminal justice system, she had no idea how the chain reaction to her absence would progress. How strange, Noel thought, after a life of personalized post-party thank-you notes and invitations to philanthropic events where the kinds of people she raised money for were nowhere in sight, to write a letter to a blank face. But by the time her letter reached anyone, Noel wouldn't care who was reading it.
1: We just heard from the interloop interns, Beth Spacia, and Reem Nadim.
0: It's amazing to me how the quality of work really can span uh, the entire stage of all careers, from beginner to Pulitzer Prize winner absolutely. And I mean,
1: you know, even in the beginning, of year, there are some things that I wrote early on that are still some of my favorite things. It's certainly, like, Okay,'ve I've learned different techniques or, or become more adept at certain things, but there I, I really think that in in all writers, if you have the drive to write, there's something inherently um, perfect about those early moments, you know, when when you're just just putting it out there.
0: Definitely. And... my the culminating story of my memoir that I'm still working on, um, I first wrote that story. Way before grad school, I think in 2010. So that's seven years ago, um, and I wrote it. One iteration of it, I completely rewrote it, but it still sure. had the same elements and a lot of the same, um, you know,
1: energy. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel is wildly gesturing in the air for those of you who can't. I can't turn something. it into a noise. <laughs> um, and also, and and by any and by any age, I, mean, I really do mean you know what it. It all depends on when you when you start writing. If it's if it's you know, especially in our community, we have early career, late life stage writers. Lots of times that I'm totally blown away by their their um, courage for saying, you know, I stifled this for so long, and and now I'm gonna try my hand at really putting pen to paper.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right that whatever was that first moment of inspiration for you that something that fascinated you in the beginning stages of of creation mm-hmm. will continue to fascinate you and inspire you throughout your entire career so
1: well i think that, that concludes our show
0: for the evening but um thanks to vijay shashadri for joining us on the show and giving us such an amazing in-depth discussion of micro to macro
1: To learn more about our delightful interns who we just heard from, check out our blog at www.TheInnerLoopLit.com.
0: And that is where you can also submit to read at one of our upcoming events. And find out more about us and what we do. The Inner Loop would like to thank Andrew Logan for our theme music, Mark Buckskimper for our logo, and James Skinner for technical support.
1: And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or any other streamings that you use. Your review could inspire the next person to tune in.
0: And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And happy writing. Right now, I'm with.